Oh, Bretto. What's up, MP? Damo just called. Yeah. He thinks there's going to be 100,000 people at the Wellness Summit. Oh, again? He thinks we're bigger than Michael Jackson, the Rolling Stones, and the Beatles all put together. Damien Christoph has gone completely mad. Did you know he's made eight tons of forage? What? <laughs> and now he wants you and I to help him get rid of it. Oh, Damo. So, look, being the good friends that we are, we've asked him. You've been forced. Well, we've kind of twisted his arm to make him literally give his forage away to 100 lucky Wellness Summit attendees. So if you're ready to enrol for our signature two days of inspiration, education and empowerment and entertainment. What do you mean, MP? Australian Idol winner Wes Carr makes his Wellness Summit debut this year, Bretto. Wes Carr, you'll be guilty. So if you're ready to be entertained, head on over to thewellnesssummit.com and get four value bags of forage muesli or one bag each of paleo, muesli, bircher and porridge when you register. Now, all you need to do is register for this two-for-one special, bring a buddy, bring a friend, bring a family member or a colleague and then choose your forage selection, four muesli or four assorted and get four bags per attendee. That's eight bags per double pass. That's almost 250 bucks of forage for free when you register for the Wellness Summit on August 25-26 at the Collingwood Town Hall in Melbourne. That's 150 serves of breakfast. Almost six months of breakfast just for registering for the Wellness Summit. Well, it's first in best dressed. These 100 tickets are only available until June 18 or until sold out. All the details of this special offer, all the topics, featured speakers and more are over at thewellnesssummit.com. Thanks for making eight tons of forage, Damo. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Wellness Women Radio for the women with big dreams who dare to be different and who want to thrive in health, work and play. Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston bring you a weekly podcast to help you master true health and create an exceptional life. Hello there, wonderful listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today on Wellness Women Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And we are diving into what we think is probably one of the most important women's health topics that uh, is coming out right now in terms of emerging research and certainly posing some enormous questions, which we are going to tackle today because we're really excited by this. This is kind of like an area of uh, personal interest for both of us. And today we're going to talk about endometriosis and the question of whether endometriosis is an autoimmune condition. Mm, this is so, so interesting. And ladies, uh, if you're joining us, you're going to be along for this journey of us kind of unpacking our headspace with this <laughs> uh, because there's some really, really fascinating research coming out that we want to give to you first. So literally as soon as we are coming across this stuff and as soon as these questions are being posed, we're like, right, we have got to, you know, dive into this more. We've got to do more research. And then as soon as we've got enough information, then we're giving it to you. So this is still um, a theory and it's still definitely a theory within the medical community at the moment. And I don't know why it's not given more weight or emphasis at the moment, Ash, um, because some of the studies that I've been reading, yeah, are, are brand new, but also some of them were published in like 2012. Yes. So they're six years old, but how do we not know about it? And why isn't this idea of the immune system involvement with endometriosis at the forefront of all 
you know, gynecology and reproductive health. I don't understand how, you know, more people aren't talking about this. It's incredible, isn't it? And it's particularly because the prevalence of endometriosis is as little as one in 10 women. Um, and there's even suggestions that it could be as high as 50% of women showing endometrial tissue in the peritoneal cavity, which is, you know, a hallmark of endometriosis. And this is just like a massive thing to think that that many years ago, people are posing this question. It kind of fell on deaf ears for a long time because obviously, well, you know, um, <laughs> it all comes down to, to money and industry and what's going to get the best yeah. outcomes. And if you don't have a drug that can fix the problem, then is it worth researching? Um, but instead, you know, we're looking at something that is potentially the only solution, maybe dietary and lifestyle changes to help women overcome the inflammatory autoimmune responses that are potentially driving this condition. So let's talk about some of the stuff that's coming out there because I think I got really excited once I started to see like multiple research papers and multiple discussions about this. And it's almost like one sort of research group jump on board of the notion and the ideas posed by another and take that like that thought process a little further. And I think this is why it's suddenly getting a little bit more traction now because it's taken a couple of years to people to replicate studies, to stretch the studies a little further and to challenge what the common notion is on why endometriosis occurs. And of course, then, you know, what can be done about it? Now, the thing that, you know, a lot of women with endometriosis, uh, endometriosis will you know, report. <laughs> you can just is, call it endo. endo I cool. all, all the women that have endometriosis are just like, oh, you know, my it's endo. endo. So. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll call it endo because I just think that's a bit, a bit of a less of a tongue tie. But, um, you know, so for women with endo, the interesting thing is that uh, what is often found, and I know that you've got patients like this, Andrea, because I've certainly had chats to lots of women in this position where they go in for standard testing, they have a laparoscopy, but the degree of endometrial tissue found is not in proportion with their monthly experiences, you know, with the debilitating, yeah, yeah. crippling pain and the excruciating um, experiences they're having. And even as much as a woman saying that, you know, she'll take childbirth over her endo episodes, that is incredible like exactly isn't that amazing and it gives you an impression of just how serious debilitating and life affecting this can be um irrespective of the volume of endometrial tissue that's found on a laparoscopy so you know for ladies that have endo um you're not going crazy there actually are some mechanisms at play to make sense as to why your pain experience is almost disproportionate to what is shown up in testing Yeah, and the reverse can be true as well because Mm. someone can have, say, stage four or be graded as, um, you know, stage four endometriosis where there's adhesions all over the bowel and bladder and everywhere else, but their, you know, pain and symptomatology may not reflect that. So that's why, you know, it's such such an interesting condition and it's still incredibly poorly understood. And what actually got us onto this track and to delve into this research was if you listened into the episode that we did on muscle activation syndrome that came out um, a few episodes ago, uh, it was showing that there was mast cells actually present in endometrial tissue, so in menstrual blood. And then we're like, holy crap, hold on. 
what does that mean? And I mm. remember as well, I've had patients who've come and gone who have told me things like when they get their period, they get an immune response. So they'll have flu-like symptoms for a day or two beforehand or during their period. And I couldn't piece together how it was possible that there was an immune response during menstruation. And in classic, um, you know, reproductive physiology, there's never any teachings of the immune system involvement with what happens with that hormonal and menstrual change. Mm. But now that this research is coming out, it makes so much sense. Um, can we just talk about, so endometriosis is so poorly understood. And I think that, you know, I have so much sympathy for women who do suffer with this condition because there's nothing external that you can see. So many of my patients say that, you know, often they have been hospitalized from such debilitating pain and have been accused of being, um, you know, drug addicts or looking for their next fix by going to the emergency room just because the untrained staff there are not able to recognize what is actually happening with them or don't understand endometriosis well enough. And I think that that is so, so sad. And like you said, Ash, it affects, you know, roughly 10% of reproductive age women, but I'm sure that it's a hell of a lot more than that. Um, and I think it is probably very underdiagnosed given that the disease actually requires visualization by surgeons followed by a histological exam for them to actually give a diagnosis. So mm. I think that this can absolutely be um, diagnosed on symptomatology alone. But anyway, I think that's another argument. Um, but endometriosis was actually first described within medical literature over 100 years ago. And even then, there was multiple theories um, about what was causing it. And some of those theories are still current today. And this is 100 years ago. Like, come on, surely our understanding of physiology and menstruation has changed since then. And the major... Um, theory was that endometriosis might be caused by retrograde menstruation, so where the menstrual tissue is actually regurgitated back into the uterus in instead of it expelling blood, and then that causes all sorts of problems, um, and including the growth of the endometrial tissue outside the uterine lining. However, retrograde menstruation occurs for the majority of reproductive age women, so why are some developing endometriosis from that but others aren't? Great no, question. That, yeah. That, and that's what that, the question yeah, we need to be challenging because, um, this is a perfect example of things, um, maintaining status quo in terms of a misconception that is persistent because there already seems to be an answer. Um, so don't, and I think this is probably why this new research is coming out because it was such an accepted, um, explanation for an otherwise poorly understood situation. And of course, they went, okay, well, that's what it is. And no one delved further. But now we're starting to ask the question, well, hang on. <laughs> like you've just said, if it's not happening for every woman and it's such a common occurrence with retrograde, um, then why do some women get it? Why do some women not? And I love that they're starting to ask the question about this autoimmune connection because it is making more sense, I think, as the research comes on, that there is absolutely an immune 
component to this. Uh, the question just is, is the immune component driving it or is the endo in and of itself driving the immune component? And that's what so they, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, <laughs> and that's what they're trying to answer. And I think that's a great question to be asking, you know, without expectations, not assuming that the autoimmune drives the endo um, and vice versa. But at the same time, I think just to understand that there, there's even a, an acceptance of that model of, I guess, pathophysiology um, is really incredible. So let's talk a little bit then about that sort of current theory on um, endometrial lesion establishment. So that, you know, like what do we think in this current time now um, that is causing this issue of endometrial tissue outside of the uterus? Well, I mean, the other theories that they were throwing out were there were the embryological cell theory. So just yep. as, um, you know, as you're developing um, from, you know, that embryological state, the, there's ectopic growth of the uterus so mm. or that endometrial tissue. So it gets essentially like misplaced in certain areas. Um, and, and that could certainly be sensical. And I think that that could certainly be true for, you know, certain people. There's the metastatic theory, the co coelomic metaplasia theory, which just means that there's like metaplastic changes that's happening within that peritoneal lining mm. um, that actually trans transfers cells from like their peritoneal cells into endometrial glandular tissue. But there's definitely no single theory that's within the current, um, you know, understanding or teachings that adequately explains all of the presentations of the disease. And it also doesn't explain why in very rare cases, there've been cases of male endometriosis as well. Mm. And that's actually documented. So that's why I think that this, um, you know, this immune system involvement makes so much sense because we know that there's such a huge inflammatory response that happens with endometriosis. We know that because, you know, women who are, you know, when they when they have their period, when they have endometriosis, they're getting massive bloating they're getting massive fluid changes um, they're getting you know irritable bowel type symptomatology 80 uh, percent of women with endometriosis have ibs as well so they're getting you know diarrhea and all sorts of changes that are happening along the same time um, and you know we also know that estrogen in on itself can drive autoimmune markers and can drive inflammatory markers too so we know that this is an estrogen-driven condition. And one thing I definitely want to riff off, and maybe I'm getting a little bit off track here, Ash, so um, correct me if I'm digressing, but we know it's an – we use the term estrogen dominant a lot. We throw that around a lot. And, you know, I have so many patients who come in and say, oh, yep, I'm just – I'm estrogen dominant. But I think that that term is almost – I think it should almost be redundant now because it, estrogen dominant – Compared to what, in relationship to what, your hormones act like a symphony orchestra. And we know that, particularly with women with endometriosis, that they might actually get symptoms of estrogen withdrawal right before they get their period. So there's lots of women who will get hot flashes and night sweats, similar to that menopausal type hot flush state, which is from that withdrawal of the estrogen right before they get their period. So is it more... The, the change in the estrogen pattern and where the estrogen's affecting rather than just a global dominance as well. 
Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, so is yeah, the estrogen yeah. so localised and it's affecting so much of that endometrial tissue that is also driving that huge inflammatory response that's then you know, having that flow-on effect. Well, we know that's definitely one part of it. Well, it has to be a part of it because otherwise uh, women with endometriosis would not respond so positively to hormonal yeah. interventions. So, Sorry, what I mean is like yes. pharmacological hormones. So, it, you know, if we introduce pharmacological hormones and oral contraceptive pill or whatever, delay the, the cycle, change the cycle, women are less symptomatic. However, what tends to happen is as soon as you remove the pharmacological intervention, they regress into the same symptomology they had before. So clearly exactly. changing the estrogen levels is not the solution but it's certainly um, like a, it's a patch. It's a Band-Aid effect. It's a halt and, and, and wait and see. But the amount of women that go back to their pre-pharmacological intervention state would suggest exactly. that it's not estrogen alone. Otherwise, yeah. you could fix it that way. And also most of the pharmaceuticals that are targeting specifically endometriosis are hormonal suppressive drugs that put them into an induced like you know, hyperestrogenic estrogenic state, so essentially mm. inducing, you know, a chemical form of menopause. And sometimes that is effective in the reduction of that endometriotic tissue um, and the masses of that, and sometimes it reduces pelvic pain. But the side effects that are associated with that are so horrendous that most women can't sustain it for long. Mm. Um, so I think that this this idea of modulating the immune response, I think, is also like a really novel therapeutic strategy as well um, that I definitely have not considered seriously enough until now. Um, yeah, okay. Fascinating. So let's talk about um, one thing that I think is absolutely fascinating, and I really want women to understand this, is that menstrual blood is really unique and very complex biological fluids. Um, it actually contains 385 proteins that are unique just to menstrual blood, which I think is amazing. And it's very heavily active immune tissue. So it contains mast cells, like what we talked about a few episodes ago. So go back and listen to that. It um, contains cytokines, immunoglobulins, um, uh, like white blood cells, so eosinophils, um, T cells, uterine-specific natural killer cells, which aren't found anywhere else. And it's like it's full of microbial active tissue, so including iron, obviously blood, but all of those inflammatory markers, as well as um, degranulated mast cells as well, um, which I think is just absolutely fascinating. Um, so, is this is the fact that the the endometrial or the uh, menstrual blood in itself, and is our understanding of the fact that there is little known about how the extent of these immune cell subsets contribute to that whole network of, you know, the cytokines and the inflammatory chemicals that modulate the growth of that endometrial tissue, the implantation of the endometrial tissue and how the inflammation associates with that Um Oh, I just, yeah, I think that this is just so interesting. Oh, it's a massive, you know, when I say can of worms opening the box, because another way you've got to look at it is, is so these are just all questions we're posing. Sorry, ladies, yes. because there's a lot to ask. I mean, if you're experiencing endo, we should be asking these questions and just trying to piece together our own understanding of what endo is and how it is applied in our own body. 
But what you've got to imagine is, okay, so let's just say the body goes crazy for whatever reason, you know, <laughs> it's lost its way and it sends that endometrial tissue into the peritoneal cavity, okay? That's where it yes. seems to cause all the problems. Yes. The question is, how is it that those little fragments of endometrium can survive the defences of the body? Okay, for a start, because yeah. that's what they're meant to do. They're meant to flag abnormal cells in abnormal locations so that yeah. they don't become a problem. And this is, you know, cancer, for example, you know, abnormal cells in abnormal places proliferating unchecked by the body and, you know, continue on the process of growth. Um, not that we're calling endocancer, but the immune yeah. response yeah. is interestingly and quirkily similar in some ways. Um, they then do attach to surfaces, <laughs> invade, modify the, the peritoneal tissues and establish a blood supply. Yeah. Now, that is fascinating. It's got to do all of that without the body noticing. So the question is, what is switching off the immune response, as in the, the natural killer T cells and cells that are designed to destroy abnormal tissues in the wrong places, um, and allowing for this cytokine-driven uh, inflammatory response, which amazingly does exactly what that tissue needs. It brings all of the increased inflammation to that site, which increases the blood flow and gives it a, a source of blood to continue mm. the development and establishment of growth, which I'm just like, wow, that's kind of clever little like trick with it. Like it's as in it's almost like a really super tricky tissue. It somehow managed to trick the body into allowing it to stay where it's not meant to be and also giving it a blood supply so it can continue to grow, which is why it's so problematic and requires, you know, laparoscopies and, you know, tissue removals in order to deal with this continued overgrowth. Yeah, that is so fascinating. But even mm. uh, statistically, even the absolute best surgeons only ever can get you know five to ten percent of that endometrial tissue and the actual removal of it depending on what systems that they're using can create even more problems even more scars and adhesions in the first place ah that's such a catch-22 isn't it Ooh, but, here's, a, here's a here's a cute little one i'm just going to give you a quick snippet from a, a research a i was reading here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how's this and this is just another one of those big statements which i'm like wow that is a bit of a mind bender um not only are these utopic endometrial cells from women with endometriosis more resistant to cell mediated immune attack but also they've shown to have increased prolif proliferative capacity meaning they can grow more and fast increased aromatase expression leading to increased estrogen concentrations mediated by prostaglandin E2. That's so interesting. So it's like a tissue that can feed itself and grow itself. And that's why we are now thinking this whole idea of immune system dysregulation as an absolutely incredibly valid notion when it comes to dealing, managing, and hopefully one day curing this issue of endometriosis. And it's interesting that um, they used to say that if you have really bad endometriosis, the thing that will fix it is pregnancy, right? Mm. They used to say that if you get pregnant, your endometriosis, endometriosis will go. And we know that that's absolutely not true. And we also know that having a full hysterectomy is not going to cure the pain either. Mm. But I'm wondering if the original reason that they thought that that was the case was because when a woman becomes pregnant, there's a complete change in the immune system to allow for that foreign uh you know substance which is you know different dna to the mother and yes. different tissue to the mother to allow that to grow and develop and thrive so 
once the placenta takes over, that's actually suppressing that immune response locally. Yes, correct. And, and that's then, what's allowing, yeah, absolutely. And, that, and I'm wondering if that's what's allowing the suppression of that endometriosis, maybe for, um, for a long time for some women or for a short period of time for some women, and why also women with endometriosis, if they do conceive, can tolerate lots of other things that they weren't able to tolerate previously, and all of their inflammatory markers are decreased as well. And I'm also wondering, is this idea of this immune system response to or with endometriosis, is this also one of the reasons, not just because of the uh, adhesions and the structural changes to the reproductive organs, but is this also part of the reason why it is one of the big um, causes of infertility. Mm. So is this the explanation for the immunological reasoning behind infertility that goes with um, endometriosis? And is this also why when some women are put on certain immune modulating or targeting drugs, why they can conceive? So, for example, I know there's clinics, there's one in um, the UK that pretty much exclusively just uses LDN or low-dose naltrexone to help to support women to conceive. Mm. And I'm wondering if this is part of reducing that inflammation, um, changing that localized massive immune response and allowing, you know, proper implantation to occur. Yeah. Um. One thing that we also have to talk about, I think, is that a woman's experience of her pain and symptomatology, like what you said at the very start, is sometimes completely out of proportion with the stage of the disease. And we are totally sensory beings in the sense that all of our past experiences and our past associations with pain can dictate our future experiences and what our expectations are and create that neural programming, right? Mm -hmm. The women that I see who have endometriosis have such a strong negative association with their period for very obvious reasons Um, and you absolutely cannot fault them for that um, because of the pain and discomfort and debilitating, you know, experiences they go through. But it's almost like they're walking on eggshells treading up to their period, um, which is, which I just think is really interesting. And I'm wondering if that continual perpetuation of the fear and stress associated with that is also changing that experience. Um, and what they found as well is that with the women with um, less advanced disease states who have severe pain and severe reactions is that there was um, – they did find a lot of immunological like active um, sort of processes happening, but also the nervous system involvement in that was so much greater. So the neural, like the essentially just the nociception, um, uh, just density and the neuronal involvement to that area was greater than other women as well. Well, that's that hypersensitization and that can also be um, psychologically driven. We know that. So, um, which is why, you know, someone, for example, in, like you said about prior experience, let's just imagine like you hate needles and in the whole workup to going to the doctor to get a needle, you know, you're 
basically psychologically hypersensitizing your body. So when that needle finally touches you, you're so acutely aware and sensitized to it that your pain experience can be disproportionate to the size of the needle the actual doctor's using. You know, you're feeling like they're sending in a, a horse tranquilizer, you know, needle, but meanwhile they're using a very fine fine point needle for a simple blood draw. Um that is yeah. super interesting and that and it's absolutely relevant because we know, you know, neurologically we can we can either produce as we, we can create or we can disassemble pain pathways um, based on the way we think. And that's pretty interesting because endo is certainly um, something that, well, you immediately have a negative connotation to the concept or idea of endo. So a woman who's finally diagnosed yeah. with endo um, can actually start to experience worsening symptomology because of the mental associations to it. That makes perfect sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And there's also so many comorbidities that are associated with endometriosis as well. So like I said, 80% of them will have irritable bowel type syndrome. Um, a lot of them will have other kind of inflammatory responses as well. So like interstitial cystitis, really high rates of like UTI, candida overgrowth. Um, lots of them have um, genital herpes as well. Yes. So I'm wondering if there's also, you know, other immune things going going on there as well. Um, there might be other endocrine conditions and autoimmune diseases, allergies, asthma, you know, the list goes on, but those comorbidities are much higher in these women. Um, and this could be coincidental, I'm not sure, or it could just be the state of health, you know, for, you know, the majority of people that we see at the moment. But for all of the patients that I see that have endometriosis also have gut health issues as well. Um, and we and know so, gut health issues are always associated with inflammatory responses within the body because of that uh, way in which the tight junction damage allows for large and uh, damaging proteins and, and molecules to enter the bloodstream, which activates our immune system. Wow. <laughs> so, I know, so, so much. <laughs> yeah. So it's really, so really what we're trying to, you know, kind of throw out there is, you know, by the inflammatory nature of endometriosis, is it the cause of the consequence of the disease process? And that's like, um, that would be a great PhD um, <laughs> topic right there. Yeah, because um, because women, you know, tend to exhibit this hypersensitivity to inflammation, not just in their uterus and, and peritoneal cavity, but across multiple organ systems. So, you know, this is where they're saying to look at more of a systemic explanation and obviously the uh, – the concept of autoimmunity and autoimmune disorders fits that notion of a systemic concern. So, uh, ladies, usually in our episodes, we will try and, you know, break down a concept for you, give you stacks of info, and then end with, okay, these are our best solutions. Here is a list of some things you can try or do or people speak to or, or whatever it might be. Now, we don't necessarily have that for this episode because this is us. <laughs> Essentially, you're getting an insight into our headspace at the moment, um, which feels a little messy. But <laughs> um, I, I think that there's so much more research to be done here. And I'm so, so excited about this. And I know that this is absolutely going to change the way that I deal with, you know, the patients that I see with endometriosis as well. But I think that the key point here is to control the inflammation. Right. So 
I would love to know, um, and we would love to hear from you, if you do have endometriosis and you have found positive changes from certain treatment modalities or methods, we would love to hear from you and we would love to hear what's worked for you. Um, I think that that would be fascinating. If you are suffering from endometriosis and you feel like you've got nowhere to turn or you've tried everything, I'm just wondering if things like high-dose turmeric or curcumin might be something that will help to reduce that inflammatory change. Um, I really like to use um, like calcium deglucrate because it helps to stop that recycling of the excessive um, estrogen um, and it tends to be really beneficial in women with endometriosis as well and it helps liver function and a few other things um, and it helps to like switch off that excessive beta glucuronidase activity that can change that phase two of detoxification. So it, I think it also has a bit of an anti-inflammatory response too but maybe something like glutathione would be really beneficial in these in these states too um i i i don't know i don't have a perfect answer here um but uh we will certainly keep putting our thinking caps on for this we will certainly keep researching this and give you the latest information as we get it as well um but like i said we would love to hear from you if this has been your experience um, and maybe we can, you know, make some case studies of that or something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, this is how, this is how, you know, the concept and notion has obviously evolved through conversations, through women, you know, through starting to notice those things like comorbidities and asking better questions, you know, is it an inflammation, like inflammation over activity or is it, you know, an immune response functional issue? Like, well, what's the driving force? And, um, you know, also reading about how endocrine disrupting compounds and chemicals are playing a massive role and they've found higher levels of VDCs um, in women with endometriosis than those without. So, you know, yeah. how is that environmental factor triggering and uh, as a consequence, obviously, the immune system has to respond to this constant chemical bombardment. So does it sensitize the immune system, making it more active or does it, um, you know, and clearly it has a massive effect on the hormone balance in our body. So, you know, it's just a, it's a really cool topic to see evolving and we really hope that more, more funding and more interest and more research is being thrown at uh, this because of just how prevalent it is amongst reproductive aged women and just how, um, I guess, debilitating can be and also in state of the effect on fertility and how many women are struggling with fertility and, you know, underlying all of that could be this possibility that it's actually an autoimmune condition. Wow. Yes, definitely. I just had a light bulb moment as well. I don't know if this is actually a light bulb moment, but uh, there's there's a very strong familial history that goes with endometriosis. So um, whether or not it's genetic is, you know, very questionable. And you always wonder how can that, you know, hormonal state be genetic. But because babies will develop the immune system of their mothers because they'll develop the microbiota of their mothers. I'm wondering if that's also part of that pathway that predisposes them to that in the first place. No doubt. Epigenetics mm. absolutely yeah. plays a role in this. There's, I think Lots so there's already studies proving questions. that. <laughs> 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 Wonderful. Well, we hope ladies get a bit of an insight into, you know, asking more questions about endo um, and how it's affecting their friends and their girlfriends and what um, possibly some of the underlying reasons are and, you know, breaking down this idea that's a simplistic model of tissue in the wrong place and the only way to fix it is to change your hormones or to cut it out um, because that's clearly not working. So we need new models of 
thought as to how and why this is happening, which will allow us to create new models of treatment and ways in which we can help better. So that's pretty exciting. I think in the future, you're going to see women um, experiencing a lot better change and potentially reversal of this condition. Awesome. Okay. Um, We just got like super excited um, for this episode. And it's funny because it's late at night. Um, Ash and I both had massive days, uh, but now I'm feeling pretty perky again. So (laughs) thank you for that, Ash. And thank you to our listeners for allowing us to kind of, you know, have that moment and get like super excited and super nerdy. Um, Ladies, we would love, love, love to hear from you. And especially if you do have endometriosis and you found something that has worked for you, please let us know. Um, Communicate with us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the wellness women on Instagram. We are the wellness women official. Make sure that you're following us on, um, or you've subscribed to us on iTunes or whatever it is, podcasting app that you're using. Give us a five-star rating if you think that we deserve it, because that's really how we spread this message of holism and holistic health to women around the world. Um, so thank you so much for being a part of this journey with us again tonight. Uh, and ladies, until next week, be well. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. What is the ramifications for you if you continue to not know where your food is coming from and not make a hard stand about what you're consuming. Back in 1992, I didn't know how to cook. In fact, I ate really poorly as many of you know. But I now love it so much that when I go to prepare something, it becomes magical. Don't want you to be stuck in the, the crap that's happening. Know it, yes. Be aware of it, yes. But bring your vibration up so that we can vibrate at a higher level and collectively we might be able to bring everybody up to make those changes. I love preparing it and I know that everyone who's eating it absolutely loves it. Even the bits that they don't want to eat, they love eating them because I love making them. Does that make sense? Cindy O'Meara and Damien Christoph feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.